I'm not sure that I've ever been on this early at Oak Ridge before. I said to Marguerite, I actually might be. I've been doing really good. I've been finishing on time every week. Because I was talking about those things that are indelibly imprinted on your minds. One of the things I remember from Oak Ridge in days gone by is they had the nastiest way of getting you off the platform of any church that I've ever spoken in anywhere. And what they did is at noontime, they just cut the kids loose from the nursery. <laughs> you remember those days? And it was like, when the kids came in, you were done. It didn't make any difference what you had left to say. You were finished at that point in time. They don't do that anymore. Thank you very much. And uh, I've been trying not to violate your time, so uh, we're happy with that. Don't forget to pray for Buchanan's and Kembers as they uh, uh, make their trip to uh, Chile. And um, that God will bless them and be a great experience for them and for their families. It's, uh, these are always strategic moments uh, in our lives. We get a chance to go to another culture. You actually get a better chance to look at yourself. And, uh, and that's a good thing to do. Some people have been saying, you know, um, we're not online yet with the messages. Okay, we can solve that problem. I can't solve that problem, but I can solve this problem. I script the message. I don't always follow the script, but pretty close. And uh, if you want a copy of the message, just email me. I'll be more than happy to send you uh, in written form um, the message. And um, that probably in in one way is better for you because you sit down and look at it, at the logic if there's any there. I really do, in spite of what it might look on occasion, I really do try to work on the logic to make sure that everything uh, functions correctly and, and that I'm not making any mistakes. I don't know about you, but uh, it's amazing how easy it is for uh, error or opinion to creep in your mind. And if you're not going back, checking the scripture all the time, make sure, you know what, I'm really, I'm on the right page. Uh, easy to mis- make mistakes, and I don't want to do that. Because I take very seriously uh, the task that I have, which is to make clear to the best of my ability the Word of God. This is not the opinion of man in my mind's eye. This is the Scripture. This is God's Word. And I'm responsible to make it as clear as I can and not add to it or to take away from it. So I really do try to check. If you catch me making a mistake, you come tell me, say, you know what, Lou, I'm not sure. Here's the text. Read it. Think about it. I'll be more than happy to have that conversation with you. Believe me. Um, we all need to grow in Christ wherever we are. One of the great things that encourages me about Oak Ridge, and uh, I just want to share with you some of those things, is how many people are actually involved in doing stuff around here. It's amazing. I'm not going to tell you who because it's not about that. It's just when I'm here and I'm in my office and I'm watching what's going on, I'm saying, wow, those people are here a lot and they're really committed to uh, making things happen in the church. And that's that's a really very exciting thing and a very good thing. We just need more people to make more things happen, right? That's what we really need to work on is to get more people, more people uh, to make more things happen. And if I could say one thing I think would really help would be more consistency in attendance. When trying to do a series of messages and you hit one message, not another, it's, a, it's really hard. And I have to go back and review and stuff like that. And I like reviewing because it's important. So why don't we start with some review, which is I've been trying to make clear to you that when you look at the world things aren't really so good out there, right? Like, there's a little dip in the economy in China. And you feel it, right? We're economically 
connected. There's a little, and, and when I say we're economically connected, when you look at the drop of the oil price in the world, same deal. Canada feels it. And when you start traveling, you really feel it, right? When you start going through exchange rates and all of those things, and you start looking around, and it's about ecology. Margaret and I used to raise some bees. I thought I would try doing bees for a while. I kind of gave that up because they were dying faster than than beekeepers could raise them. I mean, there's a huge, hugely diminishing number, not just of bees, but of butterflies, and of all sorts of other pollinating and necessary insects. I know we don't like insects, and, and I'm not here to talk about insects this morning, but you start looking at the world and you say something is disturbingly wrong. Surely it has to be better than this. And that's where the Bible begins. It wants you to understand where it all went wrong, and that's what we've really been trying to look at. What made it all go wrong, and why do we have this persistent belief that things can be really a whole lot better than they are? Is is that just a dream? Is it that we are, you know, what should we say, the eternal optimist? And we think that, you know, if we dream hard enough and we envision hard enough, sooner or later something's going to happen and, and things are going to get really, really good? Is that what Christians believe? And the answer to that question is, not really. Not really. We believe something far different from that. We believe that paradise or Eden or utopia or whatever you want to call it isn't a dream at all. It's a memory. It's a, as Plato, the the philosopher would have said, it's a recollection. That you have a deep memory. I said last week it is something that's burned into the spiritual DNA of our beings. It's etched into us. It's what Solomon said, eternity is written in our hearts. Go to any funeral. Everybody said, oh, you know what? He should have died. Is that what you hear at a funeral? It's like, gee, he was kind of young to die, or it's too bad he died. We know. We know deep down inside we were intended to be around forever, and we were intended to be around in a much better condition than in which we find ourselves. So etched onto our being somehow is this memory of the fact that we were the best of the best. We used to be a whole lot better than we are. And we used to live in a whole lot better place or there's, there's a whole lot better place in which we're supposed to live than what we're living. And we're like children. We're like children who are lost and we're just wanting to get home. That's what we're talking about. Just this incredible desire to go home. We remember what it was like. And of course, there are attempts everywhere about going home, right? All sorts of attempts. We have religious attempts to go home. There are all sorts of religious communities set up to mimic utopia on earth, whether they were set up by the Shakers or the Quakers or some other religious group. But you and I know we go to Shaker villages to see what used to be, not what is. It didn't work. And, of course, there were not religious attempts. There were atheistic attempts to do the same thing. All you have to do is look at the great social experiments of Russia and all of its subsidiary states and China and whatever, and you soon see that didn't work either. 
And then, of course, there are the scoffers who are out there who are laughing at the failures. You know, one of the scoffers being Ayn Rand. I don't know if any of you like reading Ayn Rand or not, but The Fountainhead or maybe Atlas Shrugged or something like that. She's an incredible writer and has a, a radically individualistic point of view. And right next to her, but coming from a different plane, is somebody like Jean-Paul Sartre writing Nausea, saying, that's his big book. Isn't that a great title for a book? Nausea. Just makes you want to read it. You know. What you get when you read it is nausea because you find out that you're alone in the world and it's a big bad world out there and you're fighting for your survival every day and you gotta create your own meaning. What you find out as you begin reading this stuff is the existentialists, the nihilists, the radical individualists, Passé. I came across a quote the other day by Albert Camus. Albert Camus was also one of the great French existentialists. And, and here's what he says. He says, in the middle of winter, in the middle of this deep, dark absurdity of life that the French existentialists described, I at last discovered that there was within me an invincible summer. What he's really saying is this. No matter how hard I tried to repress this memory of utopia, no matter how much I tried to erase it, I couldn't get rid of it. That's a huge statement. A huge statement by a person who had written profound books such as the myth of Sisyphus and other books that we're talking all about, how the human has to stand in the face of absurdity at the end of the day, an invincible summer. He couldn't escape. Our young people, of course, are often what they think are new tracks. <laughs> Just like most of us at one point in time thought, our parents didn't know anything, we're going to show them something new. It turned out to be the old, just in different clothes. And so what we have today is a a new individualism, a new spirituality, and a new atheism. And the thought is that this spirituality, this atheism, will escape the consequences. Probably not going to happen. Probably not going to happen. Why is it, why is it that we can't get back to paradise? That's the question we really want to ask. And the first reason for that is because it never was a human creation. Never was. It isn't like Adam and Eve found themselves one day in kind of some dark spot in the universe and thought, you know what, there's got to be, we can do something better than this. And they got out all the little magazines, House Beautiful and whatever, we're going we're gonna to do something better than this and create a new place. And they sat down and they planned and they brought in the uh, the designer, you know, the interior designer to make sure everything color coordinated and all. That's not the story of Genesis. Story of Genesis isn't that they, they went on a little trip to look around, see who was out there. One day they came to Shangri-La or something like that. And they finally said, Eureka, this is it. We're going to live here. It, that's not the story. And the story is an entirely different story. 
The story is that it was God's idea and it was God's creation. It was God's idea. It was God's energy. It was God's creation. And the, and the point that we need to understand is that when there's going to be a paradise, it's going to be a God thing. That's what's going to get it there. But the problem is, there's a liar out there telling us other things. The devil keeps making promises. Unfortunately, the devil can't deliver on the promises he makes. Remember, he promises Adam and Eve that if they eat of the fruit, they're going to be like gods. But in fact, he ended up like devils. He tells them that if you will partake of this fruit, you will end up, you'll, you'll be free. They actually end up slaves. He tells them, you know, the most important thing is to keep asking the question, why not? I'm trying to get it right, Ken. Why not? I gotta get that. Why not? Indeed, why not? Reminds me of a Russian anecdote. According to the Russians, it's a very, very special store. This store is for women. It's not Victoria's Secret, so you don't have to get nervous here. Okay, This very, very special store is a store for single women, and in this store you find husbands. Okay, There's a rule of shopping in this store. Okay? You can go through the store one floor at a time. But having gone through the one floor, you can never go back. So like if you go from floor one to floor two, you can't go back to floor one, etc., etc. So the story goes, the women go off to the store to look for a husband. Why not? Okay. And they get to the first floor. What they find are men who are good and true. Think, wow. It's just the first floor. Gotta try the second floor. And they go to the second floor and they find men who are good and true. And caring. Women like that. That's a lot better. Caring. Not just good and true. He's caring. They think, wow, it's getting better. Second floor is better. So they go to the third floor. He's good and true and caring. And, and he'll be a really good father. And they think, wow, it's getting better all the time. Let's check out the fourth floor. He's good. He's true. He's caring. He's going to be a great father. And he's going to be Adonis. Like he's going to be a great lover. And this is better all the time. Next floor. But on the next floor, there's a sign. No men here. This floor is for women who are never satisfied. That's what Adam and Eve was all about. See, that's the story of Adam and Eve. They had absolutely everything, and they're still not satisfied. That's what the devil convinced them of, right? You can have more. They already had it all. But you can have more. And so what happens? They begin thinking like the devil. They listen to the devil. They think like the devil. They act like the devil. They look like the devil. And pretty soon they're in the same place where the devil is. Out of the presence of God. Now, when I say they had it all, I want you to keep in your mind, you always need to be keeping in mind the pictures that the biblical writer is putting there. Understand that I believe the Bible text is very important. I do. 
I believe all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And I don't question that for one minute in my life. Okay. But I also want you to know that it's not just words through which God communicates. He uses pictures as well. And the picture you get over and over and over again is this picture of Adam and Eve. They are in God's image. They are in God's presence. They are under God's instruction. They are at rest. They are naked and not ashamed. They have it all. That's what it means. And in one moment, in one fell swoop, it all changes. They're covered. They're hidden. They are blaming one another. They are blaming God. And they're dying. And they're heading out of the garden very, very soon. How does that happen? How did that actually happen? What happened there? The answer, biblically, is sin. Now, sin is not a very popular word, I understand. We've almost removed it entirely from our vocabulary. But we don't use words. We don't just get rid of words because we don't like them. Okay? There's a lot of words that I don't like. Like small man complex. I can think of a lot of words I don't like. You probably can too. So it's... We just don't get rid of the word because we don't like it. It it conveys a truth to us. And as soon as you come across this idea of sin, which is at the very heart of Genesis chapter 3, all of a sudden you begin seeing that once sin is there, Adam and Eve are not the same. And not only are they not the same, their offspring are not the same. Because you read in Genesis chapter 5, that when they have a child by the name of Seth, he is in Adam's image. You see, Moses wants you to understand God's image, Adam, Adam's children, Adam's image. Something happened, something went wrong. And these children, their inheritance is terrible. They inherit sin, and they inherit death. I'm still there. Okay. I inherit, they inherit death. This brings us back to the word sinners. People really don't like the word sinners. You want to get somebody really ticked off? You just go and say, you're a sinner. You know, they say, and they say something like this, takes one to know one, right? Or, who are you? To say that. Well, you know what? In, in fact, when the word sinners is used, one sinner is calling another sinner a sinner. And that doesn't make the statement false. In fact, the statement's true. Because the scripture says what? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. So, that statement's always going to be true. What, what, but we just don't like the statement. And so we try to escape from the statement, and we start playing like Adam and Eve, and we start putting on the fig leaves, and we, and we start hiding in the bushes, and we start making excuses. All of the things that Adam and Eve did, exactly the same things that we do. 
Here's something I want you to note. Four things that you need to note about sin today. This is not the message. This is just four quick things I want you to note about sin. The first of all is that sin is not always obvious. See, as soon as you say somebody's a sinner, what happens? Somebody comes to you and says, well, I know somebody and he is really nice. He's really, really good. You know what? There's a lot of nice, good sinners out there. That the sin is invisible. What do I mean by that? What makes a person a sinner is whether God is first in their life or not. It's not whether they're going around handing out roses or whatever, or kudus or whatever. They, it's, it's not about any of that. It's about, is God first in their life? Because they can be the nicest person in the world and be an idolater at the same time. And in God's sight, they're a sinner. Okay. The second thing you have to note about sin is it's always, always operational. It's always running in the background. You may not see it, but it, it's there moment by moment, day by day. It's kind of like death. Okay. You know what I mean when I say kind of like death? What, what am I doing here? No, it's, um, they shouldn't be going. No, let's keep going. I'll just switch back to that if uh, things mess up. Okay? I have no idea. It, it's not what I'm talking, it's what I'm walking that's driving me nuts. Anyhow, here we go. You get back. Anybody know where I was? Oh, you know what? I saw a very famous preacher at Calvary Baptist Church in New York when I was there. And he, and he got off on some tangent. And he said, anybody know where I was? And 1,700 people, not one person knew where he was. Okay? I'm, that's, that's a true story. Honest honest goodness. So I'm, I'm feeling good. At least some of you know where I was. I know where I was too. It's always operational. It's like death. It's, you know, it, some people think, you know, you live, you live, you live, you live, you live, and then you die. Actually, it's you die, you die, you die, you die, you die, and then you don't live. Because you're dying every day. And sin is functional in your life every day. It's in the background, always at work. And as soon as you uh, weaken, boom, it springs into being. Okay. I mean, I got more batteries if we need them. It's, it's, it's about where I am on the platform. It's working now. So here we go. Okay, I, I got to quit stopping in this thing. Okay. Two more things I want you to know about sin. It is powerful and it is pervasive. Okay. And we're going to, I'm not exactly going to outline those right now because I want you to see how that works in the Genesis text. See? I want you to go through the three curses. If you remember Genesis chapter 3, there are three characters, Adam and Eve and the devil. They all are sinners, and God begins to speak to each one of those. And as he speaks to them, here's what happens. He says, first of all, he addresses the devil. He sinned first, he gets to go first. And God says to him, you are going to crawl on your belly, basically going to eat dust for the rest of your life, and 
your future isn't too bright either. Because the seed of the woman is going to crush your head. That's the curse, the punishment, if that's what you want to call it. Then God speaks to the one who sinned second, and that would be Eve. And he said, Eve, you know what? A couple of things are going to happen to you. You're going to have more pain in childbirth. So evidently she was going to have less pain. Now she's going to have more. And then secondly, your desire is going to be to your husband, and he will have the authority over you. And then, of course, we come to the third person who sins, and that's Adam. Adam's had a really good life up till now, but from now on, Adam's life is going to change because the soil and the trees and the animal kingdom and everything else that was working for his benefit all of the time changes. I'm just going to go to the pulpit, Mike. You know, all of that changes, and he's in deep, deep trouble. Now, today, people would like me to go through and say, oh, Lou, could you talk a lot about, you know, that woman-man deal, you know, Adam-Eve? Could you do that one? I could, but I'm not going to. You know, I'm not, any more than I'm going to figure out what, how did snakes used to get around when they didn't crawl? I'm not going to try to answer those questions. Am I on here? Okay. Everybody can hear me? Okay, good. I hope it's good. This is going to be one interesting tape. I don't know who edits the tapes, but they're going to have a lot of fun on this baby. Okay. I'm not going to talk about those things. What I want you to see is what I always want you to see. There's a bigger picture. Okay. This isn't just about Adam, not just about Eve. It's not just about the devil. It's about you. It's about me. These are pictures, in a sense, of, of what life is like. So I want to, and I actually want to talk about the curses now in reverse order. I want to talk to you about, first of all, the curse of Adam. I don't know what kind of picture you have. I've got Adam is kind of sitting in the backyard. He's in his man cave someplace. You know? And in his man cave, he's having a great time. Life is good. Actually, it, it really, really couldn't get much better. You know, maybe he's under his banana tree and he just eats a banana where he feels like or coconuts or whatever. Some tropical island paradise kind of deal, drinking passion fruit juice, whatever. It, it just couldn't get any better for Adam. And then all of a sudden, with a sin, everything begins to change. Listen to what God says to Adam. Genesis chapter 3. Adam Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, you for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. All of a sudden, because Adam sinned, Nature is upset. And by the way, this isn't just an Old Testament idea. It's a New Testament idea as well. Read with me over from Romans chapter 8, where we see this. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation, when subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope 
that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together in pains and childbirth until now. It isn't just that what happened in the garden frustrates Adam. It passes on to us. That's what I'm talking about, the power of sin. Yeah, it affected Adam's life, but it affects your life and my life as well. And you can't turn on the news channel without there being a severe warning of something somewhere. Wasn't it? I think I saw last evening what the first hurricane, the first January hurricane, and who knows how long in the Azores or somewhere. Usually, you turn it on, it scares you to death, right? So I don't watch the Weather Channel anymore. I don't like waking up to get scared as what could happen out there. It used to be a lot nicer when you just got up and said, "Another day, another dollar, let's go." Now I have to be scared every day. I'm not just scared by that. You're scared by the news. You're scared by economic. It's, it's, it's incredible. Here's what I want you to see. I want you to understand that one day the trees were Adam's friend. You realize that? I mean, it were the trees that provided food for Adam. Actually, when Adam's running from God, it's the trees that provide protection from Adam. And the next day... The world is his enemy. He is fighting for existence. Anybody besides me feel like every day is another fight? It's just a fight. Adam gets up every... He had been sitting in his lawn chair enjoying life. He was a kept man. Really. He was God's kept man. He had it so good, and now all of a sudden it's work, 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 work. And all of a sudden one day he wakes up and scratches his head and said, What on earth is this all about? I'm going to die. I'm working so I can die. What sense does that make? He was the French existentialist long before the French existed. I mean, that's what we're talking about here. And how many of us feel exactly the same thing? This frustration. You work, you work, you work, you work, you work. You try to get ahead. And as a Jewish friend of mine once said, shrouds have no pockets. It ain't going with you. That's a battle of existence. It's Adam's battle. It's your battle. My battle. And it's not the only battle, because now we move to the curse of Eve. Eve was created perfect. And she was incredible. She was, I presume, Adam was created perfect as well. God said they were very good. I mean, if you think e-harmony is good, God's better. Right? That's the deal. God made her perfect for him. Now, I have to wonder what Adam and Eve did in their spare time. Can you imagine what it would be not to go to a Mars-Venus seminar on how to understand the other sex? Or a seminar on how to be a better husband, a seminar on how to be a better wife, seminar on how to be a better parent, seminar on conflict resolution, seminar on anger management. They had so much spare time not going to seminars. It was incredible. 
I mean, just absolutely incredible. Great relationship. And then all of a sudden, she eats the fruit. And the next thing you know, they're fighting one another. There's this battle of relationships. They're covered. They're hiding from one another. And they're arguing. And they're blaming. And I don't know about you, but the world I live in is a battle of relationships. I can't tell you how much time I've spent in 50 years being in ministry talking with people who actually didn't like each other. Husbands hating wives. Wives hating husbands. Actually, speaking of that, somebody gave Marguerite an apron. I'm not sure where they gave it to her. But you know what this apron says? I could have poisoned you a thousand times. (laughs) And I'm like, boy, I'm not... Any day she's wearing that baby, I'm out, I'm down below, I'm in the field, right? I, you talk about battle of relationships, it's incredible. Husbands beating wives, wives beating husbands, broken vows, broken marriages, broken homes, broken lives, broken kids. And it gets worse. Because we know the statistics tell us that divorced women, if they're not living in places like Oakville with very, very high incomes, end up in poverty. And there's a high percentage of women who have, who are in poverty who have children who will end up in jail. This is a downhill road. Just downhill. We know about this. I like what Chuck Swindoll said. Chuck Swindoll says there are no great marriages. How could there be? Put two sinners in the same house? Might be good. Great? Maybe not. We know about the battle for existence. We know about a battle of relationships. And now we come to the curse of the devil. The curse of the devil is he's going to crawl on his belly. And also there's coming a day when Messiah is going to come and crush his head. But it's not just about the future. It's about the battle with good and evil. Now, maybe you're not fighting that battle, you see. There is a battle. But people say, you know what, I'm exaggerating. It's not a really big deal about a battle of good and evil or, or anything like that. Let me tell you something. As long as you're not trying to be righteous, as long as you're not trying to be holy, Satan doesn't bug you. He already has you. But here's the thing. The day you wake up and you say, you know what? I'm tired of fooling around with sin. I want to be what God wants me to be. I want to be the person that God wants me that day. It's like kicking a sleeping dog. And sin wakes up. And you're in the battle of your life. You know it. Christians, of course, shouldn't sin, right? That's what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8. Should we sin? 
that grace may abound? God forbid. They're crazy enough to ask the question a second time. Should we sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Why on earth are we sinning? Paul says because there's this tremendously powerful, pervasive thing called sin and there's something that you call the old man and once you try to live a godly, holy, righteous life, this old man wakes up with a vengeance that you can't even begin to imagine and he says something like this, you're going to be good over your dead body. And you're going to fight. And anybody who's ever been serious about their faith has been in one or more of these fights. You know what I'm talking about. And he doesn't just talk about it in Romans. He talks about it in Galatians chapter 5. Flesh wars against spirit. Spirit wars against flesh. These two things are contrary one to the other. Sin is relentless. It will not quit. It is powerful, it is pervasive, it is relentless, it will not let you go easily. That's why Paul cries out, Romans chapter 7, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will? Well, if you're like me today, you know all about these battles. You know what the battle of existence means? This absurdity of working, 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 working to get nowhere and you die. You're like me today. You know this whole battle of relationships. How tough it is to be not selfish so you're actually going to have a relationship. If you're like me today, you know exactly what it means to fight with sin. And to keep fighting with sin. And it isn't just new believers that fight with sin. Paul is wrestling with sin at an advanced age. Isaiah, wretched man. Uh, I'm a man of unclean lips. It's a battle. Depressing, isn't it? But there's some hope in chapter 3. And I want to turn your attention to that hope just for a very brief moment. Partly because I don't want to break my finishing record of being on time. Partly because we don't have time to deal with it the way I want to deal with it. But here's two things you need to keep your mind on. In the end of chapter 3, something rather strange happens. Adam and Eve are removed from the garden. And they're removed from the garden for reason. They are removed so that they will never be able to get back to that tree of life because the last thing that God wants is a sinner perpetuating that for eternity. They're not going to get to eat of that fruit so that they can live apart from God in godlessness forever. See, some people look at it as a punishment, but in another way it's a blessing. And then there's a second thing in that chapter. And it comes in the promise to the woman. And that that promise is this. That your seed, the seed of the woman, actually it's an curse of the devil. The seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the servant. A child is coming. And we know who that child is. 
That child is the coming Christ. He's going to crush the head of the serpent. And I want to tell you something today. I want to finish with just these few thoughts. If you would just look at the life of Christ, if you'll just look at the life of Christ, all of a sudden you'll begin to see that what Jesus is all about doing is reversing the curse. He takes all sorts of people who are alienated and he restores them. He restores Samaritans. He restores tax collectors. He restores lepers. You get the picture? He's restoring people. You talk about not having to work because, you know, you're not having enough food. All the wine you can drink, he can make it. Don't worry. Maybe you're not supposed to be drinking wine. I'm not pushing that point. I'm just saying he can make a lot of it. And you want to eat? He can take five loaves and two fish and feed 5,000 people. It's a picture, folks. It's a picture of Christ reversing everything. And you, and you say, look at my life, my brokenness of my life. Can he fix that too? He makes the lame walk. He makes the blind see. He makes the deaf hear. He makes the paralytic whole. He cleanses the leper. He raises the dead. You see what he's doing? He's showing us what paradise looks like. And that's just the beginning. It gives us hope. And what it really tells us is, as lost children, as lost children at the end of the day, There is a way home. And that way is Christ. And next week we're going to look at that. Because I'll tell you, you probably have had enough of depression. Me too. But here's the thing. If you don't understand sin, you cannot understand grace. If you don't understand the situation in which you found yourself, you will never, ever understand what it means for Christ to redeem and rescue and set you free. We're like Adam and Eve. We need help. And thank God, in Jesus we have that helper. And thank God, in the Gospels, we get a picture of exactly what that helper looks like. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you today. We thank you for Jesus Christ. Father, we know all about sin. We've lived in it. It wasn't for your grace. It wasn't for your mercy. We'd never get out. We thank you for giving us hope. We thank you for sending us Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name.